Hey everyone, Carolina here. Before we start today's episode, I'm going to get a little personal. I know firsthand that working in the entertainment industry can take a toll on your mental health. If you've been with me since the beginning of the podcast, you know I've talked about it plenty over the 90 plus episodes of this show. The high stress of production combined with minimal sleep and a no days off mentality can be a recipe for disaster or at the very least some serious burnout. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, BetterHelp. With BetterHelp, therapy is now more affordable and accessible. By filling out a quick online questionnaire, BetterHelp can match you to a professional therapist in a matter of days. Signing up is simple. Just click the link in this episode's description or go to betterhelp.com slash AOP. Clicking the link not only helps support this podcast, but it also gives you 10% off your first month of therapy. And in case you're wondering, I've recently started using BetterHelp myself and found it to be a super stress-free experience. So if you're struggling, consider online therapy with BetterHelp. Click the link in the description or visit betterhelp.com slash AOP. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash AOP. Hey, hey, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Angle on Producers, the show where we take you behind the scenes and into the shoes of producers across all corners of the entertainment industry. I'm your host and fellow producer, Carolina Gropa. However you found the show, thank you so much for tuning in and doing this live thing with me. Please take a moment to subscribe if you don't already, or tell a friend, tag a friend, spread the word. I am so delighted to share my chat with the inspiring, insightful, and Emmy-nominated Coco Francini with you guys today. An LA native, she began her career as a development intern, eventually becoming Quentin Tarantino's assistant in 2011 on Django Unchained. During her time working with him, they formed such a solid relationship that she eventually returned as an associate producer on The Hateful Eight. She also spent a season of her career as the VP of Activision Blizzard Studios, where she led creative development and production of film and TV content for the world's largest video game and interactive media company, shepherding projects including the iconic Call of Duty game franchise. She then went on to produce Miss America for FX, and shortly after that, she became a partner at Dirty Films alongside Kate Blanchett and Andrew Upton. On top of her prolific producing career, Coco is also extremely passionate about the much-needed gender parity in our industry. During our chat, we dive deep into the launch of the Proof of Concept Accelerator Grant, a collaboration between Dirty Films, Netflix, and USC's Annenberg Inclusion Initiative. This grant is so special, and it is near and dear to Coco's heart. It's designed to accelerate the path for directors who give voice to perspectives of women, trans, and non-binary people. Eight filmmakers will be selected and will receive $50,000 in funding to create short films that can act as a springboard for feature films or TV series projects. All of the details are right here in today's episode and also in the show notes. If this sounds like you, definitely apply. The deadline is this Friday, February 16th. So without further ado, here's Coco. Well, this is awesome. Thank you for taking the time. I, I'm very intentional about the people that I invite on the show. And for the listeners, I purposely sought out Coco. We don't know each other, but we're neighbors. And so now we're going to get to know each other, but was just excited to talk to you predominantly because of the the accelerator grant that you've launched. That is an incredible resource to up and coming filmmakers, women filmmakers, especially non-binary filmmakers. And so I was like, I'm going to go find a way to get to know her and invite her on the show. And so here you are. Thank you so much for taking the time. It's an honor to have you. Thank you so much for inviting me. I I was really happy to get 
invitation and see so many friends that have been on the show before. And I think it's really important to kind of demystify the process of filmmaking. I think it democratizes it. So I'm, I'm glad you do this. Absolutely. It's it's the goal and to give that angle that's on the producer. See what I did there? That's yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> clever. That's the goal so that, you know, people can hear from us from our firsthand experiences. So, you know, I always like to start at the beginning. I know that you were born and raised in LA and I always wonder when you are born and raised in, in an industry town, at what point do you become aware that there's this industry that you could be a part of and then finding your way specifically into a producing track. What was that journey for you? You know, I, I grew up in LA, but I was kind of adjacent to this business. Obviously I had a lot of friends whose parents were in the the film and TV business in various ways, but it's, it wasn't top of mind. It was like, Oh cool. You get to go to Westwood to see a movie and there's a premiere going on. My dad ended up, I, I always say like when people ask me if my parents were in the film business, no, but my dad ended up strangely running this physical production space in San Diego when I was around 10, but they mostly made, I don't want to say softcore porn. I don't think that's quite appropriate, but late night shows. And after, so after, after dark, stockings, renegade, <laughs> I heard of these, but they, they were like I, non I TV. Yeah. <laughs> and not quite red shoe diaries, not quite on that level. So I grew up, you know, on the weekends going down there and on the, the sets, you know, I would love to explore the sets. I remember one time I would love to go see the prop house and see all the props. And I remember going through there and being like, hey, that's my bike. And my dad was selling our toys to the prop house. So there was this kind of <laughs> low budget <laughs> film thing going on in my life for a few years. I obviously love craft service as a kid. But otherwise, it wasn't really something I was focused on. I loved movies always, but I I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And so I went to business school at Wharton at UPenn for my undergrad, uh, not necessarily knowing what I was going to do. I just wanted to have my own business and kind of be able to understand what that meant. And then I ended up kind of coming back to film after Penn, going to the Stark program at USC for producing. And at that point, I really didn't even totally know what a producer was. And I think people still don't really know what a producer is, uh, even within the industry. But I was taught this very kind of soup to nuts version of producing, which is kind of Larry Terman, who produced The Graduate and was running the program at the time and who just passed away like this past year. You know, he came from that 60s, 70s school of, you know, you find the idea, you find the writer, you find the director, you put it all together, you find the money and you carry it the whole way through. So that's really kind of how I was raised as a producer to do to do everything to run the whole gamut. Yeah. Lawrence's book is like one of the only resources I felt I found when I was coming into producing that was like the guide, you know, we have, of course, you know, there's a killer life, Christine Vachon's book, but I also felt like some of the materials that was out there was also dated to a very specific time in producing. Definitely. But with Lawrence, it was like, Oh, this, this really makes sense. And, and similarly, I was like, this is what I've always thought a producer did. I never knew there was a difference in, in the different tracks that one could then decide to choose. So you go to the Stark Producing Program, 
And then immediately, what do you do after that? You, where do you go? What's your first opportunity? Well, between your first and your second year in the Stark program, your part of the curriculum is to have an internship. So I ended up interning at a company called Double Feature Films mm-hmm. for Stacey Sher and Michael Schamberg. And it was a tough internship. And it was an internship that not everyone wanted because it was really tough. And I got it and it led to a really fruitful relationship with both of them that lasted a long time, which was amazing. And that was one of those kind of just nice moments that the Stark program provided me. And they were also very much producers in that of that ilk. They were people that, that found material and developed it. So it it was it was a tough job, but it allowed me to kind of learn from the ground up. And yeah, that was that was my first kind of gig. And then that I, I found myself starting that internship, I think on the day that their Paramount deal expired. And so this was 2009. And that was kind of a time when all the producers that had these big studio deals, they were losing them. It was just like mm-hmm. a, a tide change in in Hollywood. So it was an interesting time to kind of start and enter the business. And at that time, you know, there were there were quite a few people at that company and they had to become smaller. And what I ended up doing throughout the course of that internship is I asked a lot of people, I was like, what do you do? Like, what's your job? What, how can I help you? And as those people left, I just kind of started absorbing that work and then, you know, I was I was eventually hired there. But I, I kind of started doing the job of somebody that was the development assistant previously, who had gotten mm-hmm. laid off because they lost the deal. And then I became Michael Schamberg's assistant. And I did that for for about a year. Got it. So when you when you started and this big wave of transition is happening right in Hollywood with producers specifically, and as we are now in another huge transition within the industry, did that dissuade you at all from like this producing life? Did you have a sort of vision of what you thought a successful producer looked like if perhaps producers that had deals or that was the North Star were getting, you know, that was getting taken away from them? Did that change anything about your perspectives at the beginning of your journey? I was kind of just trying to survive, to be honest with you. (laughs) Yeah, I, I was like trying to get my lunch paid for You know, I wasn't really focused on, I was just, you know, I think the hardest step to take and, you know, when you're an assistant, it feels like interminable. It feels like you'll never get out of it. It is a hard step to make to change from being an assistant to being a creative and and not having to do those duties anymore. I think it's, and it's a big step. And you think that step, like, oh, you look at the, the people above you, the executives, and you're like, oh, they get to have lunch and they get to have meetings. Your life only gets harder which is what you don't know. But yeah, I was more focused on kind of like getting the lunch order right and trying to, you know, pick up the scraps that I could, (laughs) to be honest. You had to get a little bit more crafty about everything at that moment. Mm -hmm. That did define kind of where I've gone, I'd say. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that it was a little bit easier. There were there were a lot of ideas. You could set them up. Now, you know, it's it's just you have to be a little bit more crafty and and try to figure out how to move your things forward in a way that is not, you know, it, the studio system just isn't as robust in the same way as it used to be because less movies are being released. So I think it definitely 
kind of steered me more towards the independent filmmaking route. Not that I haven't done both. Right, right. Okay, so you basically go from a year of an assistant on a desk to then producing independently or trying to put your own No, no. After about a year of working for Michael, I was gratefully kind of let into the room on on some creative stuff. And around that time, basically, there was a time when I was kind of the only assistant at the company for four executives and producers. And there was, you know, a couple of creative things that was being let into. So it was it was really busy. And around that time, uh, you know, they double feature was going to produce Django Unchained. And I kind of begged Mm -hmm. every day to to work on that film just to get out of the office, which it seems like, I mean, of course it was a Tarantino movie, so it was, it was extra urgent, but I had participated in, in three or four films while I was an assistant. And it's just, you know, you feel so far away from the actual movie making. And so this felt yeah. like an opportunity where I could kind of get on set and, and experience something different. So uh, I begged and begged, but like I said, I was kind of the only assistant. So it, losing me was very challenging. But eventually I worked my way into the production office for Django and Quentin's former assistant had been elevated to a producer. So there was kind of an opening and Mm -hmm. I ended up working for Quentin Tarantino throughout that movie and and kind of moved on from double feature into this new space and ended up going on kind of a wild ride for nine months while we shot that movie all over the country. So did you go into the production office as in like an office PA or a secretary? And then there was this opening and then you got to like. I went in kind of as a helper. I was helping everyone, but I would I made sure to make myself available, you know. And so I went in kind of I was I was assisting the producers like they didn't have other people to, to help them. And I was really experienced by then. So I was kind of helping with more high level assistant stuff. And there also wasn't a second AD on yet. So I was taking on some of the, I I found myself to be kind of a Swiss army knife. I mean, that's really served Mm. me well throughout my career. Like that's what I I basically, if there's a hole to fill, I kind of figure out how to fill it. And that's from the beginning up. And it's fun to learn new things. I mean, that's why I do this. I think that the, the exciting thing about doing this job is it's not the same thing every day. It's a new challenge you have to solve. I mean, sometimes it can be soul crushing, but sometimes it can be exciting <laughs> when you succeed. Yeah. So I kind of went in there every day and and just tried to be as helpful as I could. And, and it started with kind of offering Quentin coffee and dropping things off at his house, which on some level, I was it was a little below my pay grade, but it was Quentin Tarantino. You know, so I right. and then I remember not knowing if I really was really my job until I was on a flight to New Orleans. You know, I never knew if they were going to actually take me until I was on that plane. And that's kind of my mentality now with the films I make. I'm like, I don't know if this is going to happen until I'm on the flight. And I think that's a that's a self-protection mechanism because you don't want to get your hopes up because things change and fall apart in a million different ways before they come together. But yeah, it was really just making myself useful. And eventually I was useful enough that I got a plane ticket. And from there, you know, I was able to kind of replace myself at Double Feature and just went on the ride. And it was, it started out, I like to say, like, it started out really basic. It started out with me bringing him coffee. And then by the end of it, it was like, I was helping, you know, with his book deal for the screenplay. (laughs) So. It really uh, evolved. Yeah. Do you think that evolution just really comes from the time and trust and 
consistency of, of having someone there? Well, I think that I had been trained at Double Feature to be extremely detail oriented. And, you know, working for a director in some ways, it, it's, it's very close to producing, you know, mm-hmm. um, which is why you see a lot of director's assistants kind of become producers, which, you know, I did with Quentin as well. So the work is very much, you know, if you're, if you're a, the type of producer that's very focused on your director, which I am, the work is very, very similar, you know, just trying to make sure that you can kind of execute what those needs are and make sure that they're supported in a particular way. I don't know if that really answers your question, but yeah, yeah, it does. But yeah, I think there's like an alchemy of personalities, right? Because every successful working relationship is a marriage of sorts. And so I guess I'm curious, you were elevated quite quickly, not necessarily entitled, but just in like trust from a nine month period. Yeah. Some people take years to get to that. And then clearly returning however many years later to do the hateful eight. So I guess I'm curious, what do you feel looking back now? perhaps was the secret sauce, and maybe you already answered it with your attention to detail, that kind of helped you build this so quickly, such an established director, in a way, sounds like sort of catapults you on your path a little quicker than most. Yeah, well, I mean, the the shoot was nine months, and then there was post. So it ended up being like a year and a half, that round we had together. I think, you know, part of it is we had fun. We just, yeah. we we had fun. And he's such a amazing, fascinating person. And for me, it was kind of my first real immersion into that world. So I mm-hmm. I was far less jaded than I am now, perhaps, too. <laughs> yeah. But we all really loved what we were doing and we were having a good time. And, yeah. you know, everything was done correctly on top of it, <laughs> I, I'd like to hope. So, yeah, I mean, we definitely clicked and were able to kind of develop a functioning relationship from there. And, you know, I think that when you're directing a movie, whether you're Quentin or whether you're a first timer, you have a lot going on in your mind. And there's, there's a lot of space that needs to be created for creativity. And I think in the world that we live in now, it's harder and harder to do that. Quentin has figured out how to do that throughout his career by, you know, he he doesn't really engage with technology the way that we all do in terms of like having a cell phone or being on email. So really, I was kind of the conduit to him with the information that he needed. And I think that it's, it's about kind of how you prioritize what your director needs to be thinking about. And that's something I take into my work now. You know, there's certain things that I, you know, I don't want to be not saying everything, not telling, <laughs> telling everyone, someone, everything that's going on, but like there's certain things that need to be priority and there's certain things that you can kind of handle. Right. And knowing the difference, I think that's the finesse yeah. of the job, right? That's, that's what it comes requires tact. I think yeah. that producing requires tact. And I think that's when, you know, I, I, I have that innately and I developed that more. And I used to say, you know, if, if someone came to me with something for him or really any of the filmmakers I work with, I'd be like, okay, there's a rolling list and I'm only going to get to the five top things on this list. And if your thing isn't important, like it's going to be six for many days. (laughs) So you just need to understand that. But yeah, we, but mostly we just, we had a really good time and it was a, it was a really fun experience making that movie. And we spent a lot of time driving around and listening to seventies on seven, sixties on six, fifties on 
five. And yeah, it was a good memories. That's awesome. And so then you return as an associate producer. How was stepping into that role only shortly thereafter? How, how, was, how did that feel at that time? What was that like for you? I mean, it was great because I had produced Zach Braff's movie in between and raised all the money on Kickstarter. So basically, when I came back into The Hateful Eight, I kind of had had the producing experience and I was able to kind of hire someone who was a good friend of mine to take on the assistant role and free me up to kind of deal with higher level stuff. But I was still pretty involved with all of the the business of being Quentin, I would say. And it's a it's a privileged thing to to deal with that stuff because it's really fun. I mean, most of the stuff that you get to deal with, it's it's not the hard stuff about making the movie. It's like which yeah. movie are we going to bring in on Friday night to show the crew? Let's make a comic book that will be in Playboy magazine. We pick a scene from The Hateful Eight to be in the the magazine or, you know, dealing with his publicity, which is another kind of hole I, I filled on, on Hateful Eight. At the end of the movie, he asked if I would be his publicist, which is something I had never done before. But I had been kind of around during the, the Django stuff. And since I had gone through this with Zach Braff, which was heavily publicized, our Kickstarter experience, yeah. I did have something to bring to the table. And so, again, the Swiss Army knife thing, I just said yes, and I figured it out as I went along. And I had a lot of great help from, you know, actual publicists and yeah. and others along the way. Yeah, I love the, the theme that I always talk about is this idea of leaning in and saying yes to things that some other person may sit, may have thought, well, I'm a producer. I'm not a publicist. Why would I say yes to that? That's taking me away from what I want to be doing. They could have had a whole narrative about what that meant. But I think the beauty of being a producer is you have to have so many different tools in your toolkit because you never know when that's going to come up and be useful. So having had these experiences that may seem random or off course could actually be a thing 10 years down the line that gets you a job, you know, that gets you an opportunity you never would have thought about until you connect those dots. And I think similarly with Zach Braff's film, which I was here, you know, that campaign was in 2014. And I remember a decade ago for those listening, that's a long time, but you know, it, it was groundbreaking, like what you guys were able to do. It was the first time we had seen sort of artists at that level, names and faces we recognize really take their careers and their art into their own hands and really empower the artists, right? And say, well, I want to make this movie anyway. I'm going to crowdfund and I'm going to go ahead and do it. And it really set a course for like a new wave of ways that independent artists of all levels can get their projects made and seen and financed and all of that. So so mad props to you because, you know, we, we all know that running a Kickstarter campaign is a full-time job, whether you're raising 5,000 or 3 million. So the fact that you guys were able to have such a successful campaign at the time was really impressive. And I'm sure you learned a ton doing it that you still pull from today. Yeah. You know? I mean, I never knew that a part of producing would be knowing how to make 25,000 t-shirts and deliver them to people you know, but you figure it out. I mean, we were so lucky, especially because of really like the Garden State fans and the Scrub fans kind of carried us home and yeah. we raised the, the two million that we had, you know, that we were trying for within three days. And then we raised like another, I think we ended up with three million. So yeah. we raised another million over the, the course of the next, you know, 28 days or whatever it was. And yeah, it was kind of at the time, it was a pretty groundbreaking thing to, you know, people, Veronica Mars was happening around the same time. 
you know, mm-hmm. that was a pretty popular piece of IP and they were able to, to make their film. But this was the first kind of original that succeeded on that level. And, you know, it was really important to all of us to integrate those Kickstarter backers into our process as much as possible. So I learned a lot of stuff that had nothing to do with Kickstarter as well. It more had to do with kind of fan communities and marketing a movie. And there are some Mm -hmm. things that I still pull from today. Like we had 50,000 backers, all with some level of reward. At the very basic level, we had, we, we like let them into the filmmaking process. So we hired this amazing shooter and editor, Joe LaMatina, and he put together like every week a little segment on one aspect of filmmaking. And those were delivered mm-hmm. to all of our backers. And I'm really proud of these little pieces of content too, because we mapped them all out. We're like, okay, today we're going to learn about props. Today we're going to learn about costume. Today we're going to learn about writing. And I think that they just kept that community really, really engaged to the point when we were releasing the movie, we decided to give the teaser trailer to just the backers. And we created this kind of link where it would be a personal note from Zach. And it was a personal link to the trailer. And we said, this is for you guys, like you guys help make this and we want you to share it. And within a day, we had like, so many views on YouTube, I think like 2 million or something. The only higher thing on YouTube that had come out at that time, which was, you know, there were more trailers then was Godzilla. And it's like from 25,000 people opening an email and sharing it on their Facebook and Twitter, we had 2 million views. So it really was an interesting thing in terms of how to harness this fan community And of course, there were all these little technical things that we had to figure out, not only making all the merchandise, but doing an online screening, which we promised. We kind of, you know, said we would do a lot of stuff and then we had to figure it out later. (laughs) Yeah. And which you always have to. I mean, you can't know everything. But right before we started prepping The Hateful Eight, every Sunday, Zach was in Bullets Over Broadway, the Woody Allen movie that they turned into a musical. And he was dark on after the Sunday matinee and on Monday. So after his matinee, he would fly to some city in the U.S. I would fly from L.A. We'd meet there. And that night we'd do a backer screening because we said we had like 10 of them throughout the U.S. that we had sold tickets to. So it was a big operation outside of just the filmmaking. At what point then in the trajectory do you get to Dirty Films, Miss America and where you are today? So after The Hateful Eight, you know, I had been working with Stacey Sher, who was one of my bosses originally at, at Double Feature when I had that internship. And we had been, you know, developing and setting up projects together. I wasn't an employee of the company, but we were just producing together. And at the end of The Hateful Eight, she got an opportunity to work at Activision, the gaming company. And the the idea was to set up a division to create film and television out of their IP. So I went with her there and we spent three years there developing a lot of television and film based on the gaming IP. We had a show called Skylanders Academy that was kind of in progress when we started that was on Netflix and did three seasons. It was a kid's show based on a really, really popular kid's Mm -hmm. IP. We were developing Call of Duty into a film franchise and some other really important properties, but I don't know how much I can say about what we did and what we didn't do, but it was very fun. Yeah. You say I'm, I'm really fascinated by the sort of video game companies getting into like 
creation of television film properties off of their IP, bringing in people in-house. I had another lovely woman on the show who was uh, with Riot Games and sort of a similar capacity. She put together Arcane. She had an animation background, so it's a little different. But yeah. it's been fascinating to see, like, yeah, video, the video game sort of side of things, tech, try to find that bridge with Hollywood and where it works and doesn't work. So it's it's a worthwhile experiment, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think that you see with Mario and, you know, you, you see it's working now more than it right. maybe was. I think we were a little bit ahead of our time. But I, I didn't have any animation experience going into it. So having, you know, executive produced a, an animated show for three seasons, it, it's certainly another mm-hmm. thing to add to my toolkit. Though it was, it's it's a departure in, in a lot of ways, obviously, taste-wise, to to go from like Tarantino to kids animated television. But like I said, another another thing to add to the toolbox. And we were just met with such excitement by the community for all with all the IP that that we had at Activision Blizzard. So it was it was really a nice experience. And I think that in some ways it's interesting to have a few years to kind of focus on a couple of things because as an independent producer, so much of your life is looking at everything and being like, can this be, would this be, what would it take for this to be, you know? So it was mentally freeing in a way to just focus on 10 projects. And along the way, you know, before Activision, Mrs. America was in the works. So eventually the division didn't continue. And at that time, kind of coincidentally, Mrs. America was entering prep. So I kind of left Activision and went straight into prep on Mrs. America in Toronto. So it was, it was great timing and made that show in 2019. And towards the end of it, I was kind of, I was pretty exhausted, to be honest. I was really burnt out and I was thinking about becoming a sushi chef, like, and and that isn't even a joke and it's still something I think about, but I was just thinking about, should I take a break? Because it it just been like a long few years and it was, it was exhausting. And that show was really hard. I mean, it was beautiful and I'm, you know, I'm so proud of it. But it was a long TV is really challenging. I mean, I, coming from really just doing film and the animated TV show to be almost always in prep production and post at the same time was just like overwhelming. 2020 came and I saw Kate and she said, you know, I'm thinking about producing more. You know, we, we talked about me coming to join her and Andrew, and that was just something I couldn't really turned down, of course, you know, even though I dreamt of being a sushi chef. And I did go to Japan for three weeks still before we finalized things. And I had a great time. Unfortunately, that was the time that the Diamond Princess was there and it was the beginning of COVID. So we kind of talked about launching this company and then COVID hit. It's an interesting thing because if there wasn't COVID and there wasn't Zoom because, you know, we don't live in the same place, I don't know how we would have gotten through it because yeah. it's it changed the way everyone does business. But yeah, it was just, I mean, I was so honored that Kate would think of me, you know, joining Dirty Films. So it was kind of a no brainer for me to accept that invitation. We had worked together so closely for the past year on Mrs. Yeah. America, which, you know, Kate was also an executive producer on and I, I think that we really saw 
saw things the same way in terms of material. And I always found that her thoughts about the material when it came to the scripts or the cuts were just so smart and thoughtful. So it was really exciting for me to be able to view things through her lens. And so, and not only, you know, as an actor, but as a producer. So when we, when we launched this, we really wanted to focus on going beyond things just Kate was acting in. I mean, she has, she has a lot on her slate as an actor. So we really wanted to take the opportunity to kind of build a company that, that was not, you know, that was not the foundation of. So if you look at the films we did last year, I mean, one of them, Kate is in the new boy, which premiered at Cannes in certain mm-hmm. regard, but fingernails uh, was starring Jesse Buckley and Riz Ahmed and Jeremy Allen White, which we did with Apple TV plus and uh, Shada, which was a Australian film by a first time filmmaker that was acquired at Sundance by Sony Pictures Classics, where it also won the audience award. So it's a really kind of varied slate. And then uh, some of the things we've announced have, you know, a little bit bigger budgets, you know, than, than yeah. those three. And I think that the the mix for us has been how do we lift up new voices that we think are really, think are really interesting? And then how do we bring material to the really established people that we have relationships with? And those are kind of like the dual paths that we've carved as our company has continued. And yeah, I mean, it's certainly, I think the challenge has been Distance is certainly a challenge. You know, all of us, like in, I guess not last year now, in 2022, some of us were making fingernails, some of us were making the new boy. So there was just a lot going on. But I think that the the magic of it has been that creatively, we've all been aligned since the very beginning. And we all kind of like the same thing. So it's there's rarely a situation where someone says, oh, I really want to do this. And the other two say, no. It's always we get excited about the same stuff, which has made things yeah. really easy. So in a way, it's it's really cool because now you've reached a point where your entrepreneurial spirit and your producing ambitions have collided and you get to like help run and build a company in a really cool way alongside people that you work really well with doing projects that, you know, make this shit show of a trajectory sometimes worth it. And, you know, I was in the audience when Shada premiered last year and I was really blown away by that film. It was one of the reasons, yeah, that I actually wanted to reach out to you too, is that, you know, while I'm not an Iranian American single mother moving to, to Canada with my child, like there was so much as a Brazilian immigrant to America that I just identified with and saw in my own story and was just really fascinating the way that she was able to bring bring that out of me like it through her story and i guess the more specific someone is with their story the more it can be universal in how it reaches people and so congrats on that and that it won the audience award and that i'm glad it has distribution and it's going to be seen um by many people we'll make sure to promote it here because it's it's like we talk about supporting women and you know sort of underrepresented stories but i think to actually do the heavy lifting to do this work is not like the cute thing people want to just talk about what clinking champagne glasses, you know, the, the micro day to day of actually putting together ways to create pathways for filmmakers and which, which brings me to the, the grant. I want to make sure we talk about that, but yeah, I know you were 
mentioning, you know, off mic that Shada also had this huge advantage, right? Because it's it's already so hard, but they had such a huge advantage that was they would still have challenges, but this advantage that it was funded by Screen Australia, which put it leaps and bounds beyond maybe if that film had been American going down the same path of trying to raise the funding. So all that said, talk a little bit about what really propelled you to launch the proof of concept accelerator grant to rally Netflix and the Annenberg inclusion initiative and just really link arms to help change this in Hollywood. Absolutely. And I definitely want to talk about that. I want to go back. I can talk about that forever. So I want to go back to Shada for a second because I think that one of the most powerful things that's ever happened to me happened because of Shada, which is that screening at Sundance and basically every screening I've been at thereafter, people have come up to me after the movie and been like, this is my story. Like this mm-hmm. is, this is my life. And like, and like you said, it's like the way that specificity and like deep specificity can be universal. I think it's something that like we see in those films that break out going back a long time. And I think that's what's so amazing about that movie. And it was so moving about the experience of being a part of that movie. And mm-hmm. to be honest with you, like that is a movie that if Screen Australia didn't get behind it and the various groups that got behind it in Australia, I just don't know how that movie would have been made. I really don't. Like in the American yeah. system, I just don't think it would have been made. It didn't have a huge budget, but it had a healthy budget. And we were lucky that when we came into it, you know, it was a great script and Nora had done some excellent shorts and they only needed like a sixth of the money. And I think us coming in and, and also, you know, Zar Amir, who's the star of the film coming in, we, we were allowed to, you know, we were able to secure that final financing from the 51, which the 51 fund, which is specifically yeah. a fund to support filmmakers. So that was extraordinary. But that film, to be honest with you, when I, when we got into it, I just, I wasn't sure what its exposure would be, you know, because it's so specific. Then at Cannes 2022, we met Zar, who was interested in doing the movie. And then Zar won Best Actress at Cannes for Holy Spider. And it was like, that came yeah. out of nowhere. Then she left Cannes to go film movie in Australia. And then the Masa Mini stuff happened and the Woman Life Freedom movement began in Iran. And it just created a whole broader context around the events that, you know, Shada and her mom endured and the events of the movie. uh, Because, you know, this is the director's story of her and her mother. Yeah. And so it just like the, the movie kind of took off like a rocket ship at that point. You know, it was it turned out really great and it was really emotional. And it suddenly was like dovetailing with the zeitgeist in a way that was totally something that I couldn't have predicted. So it's really been one of those, you know, there are certain things where they just take on a life of their own. And it's really been that movie. And Nora is nominated at the DGAs for best first film. I don't know exactly what the category is called, but I think (laughs) it's that. And yeah, it's been really special. But it did inspire, along with a couple other films I'm working on, it inspired Proof of Concept in that I had been feeling in the process of trying to produce a couple of independent films directed by women that hadn't directed a feature before, that I was encountering a lot of pushback from the marketplace. And I don't want to compare it to the pushback I've experienced with men because I haven't 
to be honest, I haven't been in this exact same situation with men, but both of these films I'm thinking about kind of have a, a unique and, and daring tone to them. And so the, a lot of the feedback that I was getting was like, we love the script. We think the script is really interesting and we want to see the movie, but like, come back to us when you're done or I'll be there at the theater. And, you know, yeah. that is, that is, as you and I both know, a version of it's execution dependent. Right. Like it could be great or it could be awful, which by the way, any movie can be great or could be awful. Always. And a lot of them are awful, even with all the right. Totally. Spells and these may be too. We'll see. But yeah. like, you know, it felt, it felt a little unfair to me that especially at the amounts of money that I was talking about, that there wasn't kind of a, an easier path towards being able to prove your ability to direct in, in the U S and especially as a woman, it, it did feel slightly gendered the, the specific feedback I was getting because both of these films that I'm thinking about have women protagonists and they don't really fit into a particular mold. I mean, I think it is easier to finance like an action movie or a sci-fi than it is to finance certainly a drama or or a mm -hmm. chick flick. And a lot of them, a lot of the feedback was, well, we want to see shorts. We want to see, like, how do we know that she can do this? So, you know, I had the privilege of meeting Dr. Stacey L. Smith at Cannes, where Kate and I gave a, a talk for caring. And Stacey was in the audience. And she was like a celebrity to me. When she said, I'm Stacey L. Smith, I was like, oh, you can see it on that recording. And because when we were doing This Is America, we were trying to figure out how to do an inclusion rider. And also, she was a good friend of mine's professor at USC. I went to USC, but I wasn't an undergrad, so I didn't know of her. And she she teaches in the communication school. So she was like a celebrity. I was so excited. So I, of course, at the end of that talk, I pulled her backstage and I was like, oh, my God, tell me everything. I'm so excited to meet you. So we had lunch and, and talked about all my problems. She said, you know, I really, I think that there's a way to solve this. I mean, this is who she is. She's like, there's, she's, she's eternally optimistic. She's eternally kind of feels like there's a way to solve every problem. And I, and I hope and think she is right. And she said, why don't you guys come up with something that could maybe help with this? That could, that could give a, a step up to these women and trans non-binary people who may not be able to find financing as easily as, as others. So we came up with proof of concept essentially to combat the execution dependent question. So if there's a project that's out there that's kind of centered in that voice, we're going to give the filmmaker $50,000 to kind of execute something that then can be a selling tool for the movie because I think or the, or the TV show or the VR project or whatever it is, I think that it's a it's a way to build a new model that creates an ecosystem of change because i think that generally and this isn't something i've specifically experienced but generally i think that it's not as apparent to the decision makers that women can direct films and we often as women get pigeonholed into certain genres and so what i you know i do have something to prove here we all do and that is that we can do like audacious authored work that's the same as anybody else. I mean, I would love to see like the killer if it were directed by a woman. Like I'd love to just like, and it doesn't even necessarily mean the characters have to be women. It's just that right. we broaden the, the 
ability of, of, of women and trans and non-binary people to do work same as everybody else. Because I think that there were a lot of promises made and there were a lot of commitments made, but you still don't see the numbers changing. And it's, it's wonderful that like at Sundance, for example, and these are just off the top of my head. I don't really know if these facts, if these numbers are real, but around 50% every year of the filmmakers or maybe more are, you know, women trans or non-binary people. But then you look at the films that are like the top 100 films for the past 17 years. This is actual data, 6%. So how do you go from, you know, around 50 to six? That's called the fiscal cliff, which Mm -hmm. is that at a certain level, women aren't being invested in. So essentially the program's built to, to support women doing larger scale stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's brilliant. And I hope it, empowers and inspires others to launch similar kinds of programs because like you'll be able to help eight filmmakers and that's incredible, but we need more. It's not enough, you know, like it's scratching the tip of the iceberg. And I often wonder if you're a female billionaire listening, you know, that anyone who's like committed to making this change, I feel like perhaps the obvious choice isn't to invest in Hollywood because you think, oh, it's movies, it's stories, but we know the power of story to change perspectives and to change things and change policies even. And so I, I'm obviously a huge proponent selfishly, like the more that we can get this focus into our industry, the more that we can collectively continue to do the work that so many women have already been doing. I, I was lucky enough to go to the Women in Film Gala this past year, their 50th anniversary. And it was very inspiring. And they brought the, I'm blanking on her name, which is terrible, but the original woman who wrote the op-ed in the 70s on The Hollywood Reporter that launched the creation of Women in Film. And it, it, it was staggering. They were like, you know, it's amazing that we're here celebrating 50 years of this, but the data still shows that for us to reach true gender parity, it's another 150 years. And she's like, gosh, Kristen, who's the, the CEO, she was like, I don't want to be here in 150 years. I don't want to be here in another 50 years. As much as it's amazing that we've had 50 years of history, the fact that even to have to have these organizations is upsetting in the first place, right? It's a step in that direction. But And it is concerning with the way the industry right now is shrinking. There's a lot of fear in the marketplace. Women, trans, non-binary, people of color, of course, everybody are, they're the first people to get impacted and to be stories to get put to the side. Because again, the data shows the decision makers that statistically the types of movies made by certain type of filmmaker do a certain type of way, thus it lowers your risk, which I think is honestly a little bit of a, bit but of a it's not even true. It's, it's not, not true. Is How many of those films don't do well? How many of those films like aren't great movies? Like it's a narrative been being told too long as we know. Anyone listening can go on the Annenberg inclusion initiative website or the proof of concept website and see the, the, the actual statistics, but it's not yeah. true that what movies by women don't perform as well. What's true is that women don't get as much money or as much marketing support when they direct movies as men or as many opportunities. How many women can get their first feature made and not even get their second feature made? Yeah, exactly. So, so the data is skewed based on the opportunity or the perception is skewed rather. But I do think that fortunately in the independent film space, there's plenty of women participating in that space now. And I think that's really great. Yeah. But once you get to the 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 big leagues, it's still a lot of men making the decisions. And I think that certainly affects the types of films that get made. 
And yes, I, I mean, for billionaires listening, I hope there are billionaires listening. <laughs> you know, I didn't want to be crass, but the thing that I asked Dr. Stacy, I was like, where is the billionaire? Where is the billionaire that wants to invest in changing this? And fortunately, you know, Netflix really bought into this idea and their fund for creative equity came and said, we want to do this. Don't talk to anybody else, which was incredible. And they've been such excellent partners. And it just, I'm, I'm really grateful that there are companies and people out there that do want to create change. And I think what's important to all of them, and this has also been really heartening, is not just to, and whether it happens or not, I think there is an importance in creating an economy of change. And that's certainly important to me. And I'm trying to set up this program with Stacey and Kate. So it's not just a one-off eight people thing that actually we're building it to create an economy of change where from the success of these films come more. And I also think another thing that's important that you know, we touch on because basically we built the program to to address like the three most significant barriers, one being money. Money is the most important, like money, money talks, money works, but also mentorship and exposure. And mentorship can be as simple as like, I, I put together this dinner, well, actually a friend put together this dinner for me with a bunch of people that had graduated from these various kind of diversity programs around town for for filmmakers. And we had a really honest conversation about like what works and what didn't. And I used a lot of what they said in order to kind of build this program out. And at its simplest form, it was about like creating a deck. You know, how do I create a deck? How do I sell my thing? And I think that there is this mystification of directing that kind of like came out of the 70s and where it's like, you can only direct if you were you know, the kid with the movie camera on all the time. And, you know, we're not going to talk about what actually like the the actual tools that you need as a director. And I think that has become more democratized recently. But there's also producerial skills that you need as a director. You need to understand how to sell yourself. You need to understand your idea. So I think that like this podcast, for example, is important for directors to listen to because these skills do cross over. Yes, at the beginning, I talked about like you do as a producer want to create space for your director and not have to think about all this, the stupid shit that we have to think about, but they need to know how to sell their project, how to market their project, how to like, how to talk to a financier. And so all those kind of practical skills are things that we're focused on, not just like, can you have a great idea and execute it? Because as you and I know, that's not it. Like, yeah. Anyone can have a good idea. I have like 10 good ideas every time I shower, you know, <laughs> but you have to know how to follow it through and you don't have to know how to ultimately create a commercially viable product. Yes, this is art, but like, I mean, and that's the most important thing, but you also have to have some tangible skills. Well, it's got to be art meets commerce. Otherwise, yeah. you can't just be the person who creates things in a vacuum. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if you want to, again, be a part of a collaborative art form, you have to understand these skills. And I talk a lot about the importance of as a director, as a writer, as a storyteller, like a producer is is another it's, it's like your right hand. And that takes a long time to find that right person. But when you find that right person, you have to trust that that person has your back. You have to trust that they're rowing in the same direction as you, right? Because otherwise you create a system where 
directors are not trusting of producers and they think they're out to get them or they just want to shoot down their creative ideas and they're the no person, especially if you're maybe more you come up as like a line producer yeah. person like I, I have, you know, there's a lot of these misconceptions about what role a producer is meant to play, especially as, uh, on the side of people who come up on the physical side, which I talk a lot about. So I think the, the demystifying producing really isn't for producers. Like we know this, it's really for the rest of the industry. And I hope that more and more others can tune in and hear these conversations that again, are often not really had because we're not given the space to have them unless yeah. you're lucky enough to be in a room with someone like you and you are down on, you know, on that journey of making a project together and you get to learn these things, but or bitching over lunch or bitching over lunch or yeah. wine, whatever, <laughs> you know, but I think the more that we can hear these things and listeners can hear these, these takeaways from people like yourself, not just me, like talking incessantly <laughs> about this as I've done over these last five years, but the more the new class, the new generation of filmmakers that are coming up can really start to understand the impact and the value that the right producer has on your team. And then again, that this isn't a, maybe it was at one point, it, or it was perceived as such, but it really is now more than ever a truly collaborative sport. And you have to wear a lot of hats, especially when you're starting out. You have to know how to do a lot more than just be the artist who sits back and goes, no, no, I don't need to understand the financing. I don't care about tax credits. Like you, you don't need to go deep, but you have to have a preliminary understanding to have engaging conversations, you know? Absolutely. I think that it's just a very practical and I think that the practical skills are the difference sometimes. Yeah. And writing a good email, it's so silly. It's it's just important though. You know? Yeah. Writing being succinct. And those are things I learned like at the very beginning that I had drilled into me. But if people aren't fortunate enough to come up on a desk in a more executive route. I came yeah. up in the trenches. I had to learn a lot of this stuff by yeah, trial and error, especially when it comes to the finesse of navigating, building relationships, cold emailing, outreach, like all of that stuff that comes with networking. I think it's super important. A lot of people don't develop those skills on their own until much later on. If, unless, like you said, they've had the, the privilege of coming up through not the privilege, but the, the path, that's how the path unfolds for them, where they get to have some sense of like this structure that exists within the business of what's expected, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's what the program aims to do is kind of to bring people in with the relationships and the knowledge that me and Kate and Stacy have to bring people in and teach them kind of like the marketable skills as well as just give them the the tools in terms of financing and support that they need yeah. in order to develop their voice. Because, you know, often, and this is, this is something you see going back a while, but you know, you see some filmmakers that are put to jobs, but not, and I, I can't say it's to fill a quota. I can't say why, but that are stripped, their voice is stripped from them in doing those bigger jobs. And then you mm -hmm. see like Greta Gerwig, who of course she had to navigate the toy company and, and Warner Brothers. And I'm sure that was challenging, but Barbie is, is a hundred percent voice and the way that she's navigated this business to be able to make things at that level and and express her voice you know so strongly the way quentin has the way paul thomas anderson has the way you know all these kind of auteur filmmakers or even fincher you know like you don't have to be a writer and director to be an auteur i don't think but you know you have to be given the support earlier on in that process to make it there 
And you have to know, and this is something that I see with first time filmmakers or early, you know, filmmakers is like, you have to know which battles you really need to fight and which ones you don't and which ones you can let others fight for you. I feel that creating a pathway for those voices in the U.S. and internationally, but specifically in the U.S. because there is no kind of public arts funding that can support them in those early levels. And I'm not just talking about first-time filmmakers. I'm talking about people that maybe were in TV and they can't figure out how to get over or like made movies in the 90s or in the 80s if it was a woman, you know, and then there weren't opportunities available to them at a certain point and like they're coming back into it. Like there's, there's plenty of scenarios that I could say where this kind of support is needed. And also with realizing projects that are like out of your genre, if you're kind of been pigeonholed. So I think there's a lot of, you know, a lot of cases we're trying to make with this program and showing how just giving that little bit of support can, can change the ecosystem. Yeah. And I encourage anyone listening to apply and submit. The deadline is on the 16th, which is next Friday. There'll be links to this all over all the places and all the things wherever you want to get it. But I think it's an incredible program. Thank you for launching it and for putting, I mean, I know it's like a side project, side hustle on top of being a full-time executive and producer. So I'm sure it comes with a lot of uh, sweat equity and, and love, but it's it's what it takes, you know, to be a part of this change. And so thank you on behalf of yeah. the entire community. Well, thank <laughs> you. And, you know, I hope people do apply. And I'm looking for, you know, I'm looking for all kinds of things. I'm looking for animated. I'm looking for documentary. And, you know, my hope is that there's a bunch of really great stuff that is having trouble finding its feet. And, you know, we can continue on with it. So, yeah, it's. It, I think it's it's really rewarding work for all three of us, and we're just really excited about it. So I want to bring it just back to you for a minute again, because one of the goals with this show, that one of the reasons I set off on this show, aside from demystifying, obviously, the producing path and what it means to be a producer, is to really talk about the challenges. And it's not to dissuade anybody, but it's just to inform, because I think sometimes we can read someone's impressive bio or see their credits on IMDb and you get the, just a very curated impression of what you think that journey must be like for people. And I love the humanizing aspect of we're all just humans. We're all just women figuring out how to navigate this. So I love to talk a little bit about the struggles that you faced while coming up, you know, the peaks and valleys of your career, how you handle those, how do you sustain to still be here so many years later when it's, such a challenging career that never gets easier it seems you know most people in hollywood get that two two weeks off at the end of the year and you know that's my existential crisis every year because it feels often very thankless you know it feels often very very thankless and the industry's contracting it's getting harder and harder to like make a good living doing this and it feels like i'm working around the clock. And especially because I don't do a lot of work internationally, like I'm up in the morning working, I'm having Zooms at night. It's, it's a lot. But ultimately, like while you were talking, I got a text saying that someone's coming in to fill the gap on my movie. And like, those are the That's things huge. that you can, <laughs> That's huge. those are the things that you kind of live for. You're like, oh my God, I did Congrats. it. I love and- that you're just low key <laughs> having this incredible news coming up while we're recording. Well, let's see. You never, like I said, you don't trust it until you get on the plane. Yes, true. But you got to celebrate the micro wins. You got to celebrate those wins. There's part of me, of course, that's like, well, at this point, 
what else can I do? Um, <laughs> and that keeps me in. But, you know, I love, I love as much as I can, I do complain about it. I really do love doing this and I love making something and for something to come from an idea and then become a thing that's out there with other people and reactions, good or bad. Like there is something really magical about that. And I also love, you know, maybe not for someone that comes from the physical production background, but coming from the place I'm sitting, making the movie is the fun part. Post is really the fun part. And I love that. I love crafting something in the edit. You know, I don't love the hours, but I love being there when an amazing moment of acting happens or an amazing kind of like we pulled that shit off moment happens. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's kind of what you live for. And you forget it when you're in this room, which I've, I've been sitting in this room for four years because since the pandemic, I haven't had an office. But like, you know, when you're in this room, it's hard to kind of tap into that stuff because when you're a producer who kind of like develops material you know, you're not on set all the time. You're not editing all yeah. the time. But when you do pull it off, it's fucking amazing. So that my relationships with the the people, the the directors, the technicians, the crew, you know, everybody, the executives and everybody, it's just those are really important to me. And and I get to kind of delve into a new world every day, sometimes multiple worlds a day. And that's really special. When I applied to Stark program, I said there were two reasons I thought I would be a good, good producer. One was that I feel like I can solve any problem. And problem solving, I think, is the main of our job. And we solve a new problem every day. And it's it's exciting for that reason. And mm -hmm. the second was because I, I love to learn. Like, I'm a lifelong learner. I love to read. I love to kind of, like, go really deep into a world. And... I didn't know that much about the ERA when we started Mrs. America. When I worked on Contagion, I mean, wow, what that knowledge gave me, you know, 10 years later. So it's, it really is a magical part of what we do in that we can just dive so deep into, to some other world for a couple months and come out of it with like not only the experience of that world, but the experience of making something. No, that's, that's a great, I mean, I feel like every producer I've had on shares that DNA and I think you kind of have to, because that's what gets you through everything else. And it's why I ask, because when others hear it from you, instead of and just me harping on it, it reminds them that if you're in this, because you're just trying to go to like award shows or whatever maybe drives you, if it isn't really the work or the journey, like it's going to be really hard for you to sustain that enthusiasm because even when you get those moments of big wins, the high peaks that others get to also take notice, like they last for such a short amount of time that you have to have so much more that sustains you to keep showing up, suiting up and going to battle every day. Cause that's honestly what it feels like. And I've been doing this for 17 years. I've been in the industry for 17 years, but not actively producing for that time. And I had this impression when I started that like, Oh, it'll get easier when this happens or when no. I reach this place or this, credit, harder. Or this amount of money, this, that's when it, you know, you get to be like, Ari and entourage and kicking your feet up from Greece or somewhere, just whatever. Like, and it's, I've, I've learned that that is actually a completely smoke and mirrors vision of what like a producer actually does. And the reality of these like working class heroes, these blue collar workers, oftentimes who are the people going to battle to make sure that these projects get made and 
get to the point where we can share them with audiences. And so, yeah, I feel like I really identify with that. And I'm curious before we move on to the lightning round, just given that we are in this market contraction, 2023 was a really hard year for a lot of people. We're still amidst a ton of layoffs. It's just the the nature of the economy right now, like with those realities, which are dire, can be very depressing. Like what gives you hope for as we enter this new wave of whatever Hollywood is going to be, because we've gone through so many market changes over the last 20 years, right? So what keeps you still excited? What gives you hope for how perhaps on the other side of this, we have a more cohesive industry? Well, I I don't know if I think it would be more cohesive. I think we're really going through it right now. And I don't know what the other side totally looks like, to be honest with you. But I know there will be continue to be movies. This isn't going to be like CDs replacing records or whatever. And I am against all data bullish about independent film because I think that the more corporatization kind of takes over these studios, I don't know how it could be any more than it is right now, but the more kind of diverse content people will will be looking for. And so that's what makes me excited to work with new voices. Because I think that ultimately, like what breaks through is not like, oh, there's this action movie or there's, you know, like there's like more of the same and people will go consume that stuff, like a Marvel movie or a a John Wick movie. And like, those are great. This is not saying anything about, first of all, John Wick started out as an independent movie. But but I will say that what I think people really come out for is voice. So like you look at Parasite, you look at everything everywhere all at once. You look at Barbie and you look at Oppenheimer, even studio movie, you know, but they're showing up for the filmmakers. I think we just need to create those filmmakers, the next generation of those, so people keep showing up. I think that's the key. And it doesn't matter what genre, what budget they're playing in. It's about just like giving them the support to do that because IP no longer has the reins over everyone that it once had. We've kind of like gotten to the bottom of that well, in a way. There's always going to be some stuff, but... I just think that it's vital to our industry to create new filmmakers of importance and meaning. And that's what I'm trying to do. Like that is the mission of my career at this moment is to, to support that and to work with other people that are supporting that. And I'd say like for the younger people, the people that are starting out, you know, I, I say a similar thing to what you said. Like you really have to love it and you have to love like, I love watching movies, but I'll be honest with you, watching movies doesn't feel the same as it once did because now you're thinking about how it happened and all those other things. So it, the joy of it on some level does get stripped away, though there are some movies when you go into the dark theater and you're like, watch it, and you're just like, fucking wow. And those are the amazing moments and you're not thinking about that. And those are the best films. But you have to be prepared to understand that it's not just a leisure activity anymore. And you have to love the process of making it, not just watching it. Though you should also love watching it because you're going to watch it about 30 times. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think that that's important to yeah. understand that, you know, most of the real movie making moments for me, I've been like covered in mud and freezing. Yeah. And like with tarantulas everywhere. Like uh, those yeah. are three scenarios and I'm combining into one, but all those things happened. It's not glamorous. It's gross. (laughs) And it's hard. Yeah. No, I think that's a wonderful mission. And I I think you're well on your way. And we share that 
career value, career mission of that's, that's, that's the goal because otherwise I don't think there's a point to it. If we can't incubate and curate the next generation of voices that are going to be able to continue passing the baton of storytelling and on a societal level, you know, to just regurgitate IPs or formulate films that work that are entertainment that have value in the market for sure. Like it's just, there's got to be more to it, you know, because I think more and more people are going to, they're going to start reaching back to watch those kinds of movies that were made 20, 30 years ago that were still fun and wild and crazy that came from voice. You know, I think we'll always yearn for that. In my humble opinion, I think that's the only saving grace too, that we have against the whole narrative of like, oh, is TikTok and short form content going to take over? Like our kids going to grow up to not have the mental capacity to watch anything for 90 minutes. And it's like, I don't believe on a human level that we can re-rewired that deeply because stories of that level, they are here to help us learn how to be human. It's deeper than that. And a TikTok video can only give you a small percentage of that. You know, it's a different thing altogether. So that's my hope that we we really get to like continue building upon what has been built. So, yeah. And I, you know, I don't think less in some ways, less isn't a bad thing if there's a focus on quality. Yeah, exactly. And I don't think, I think there's this place for all of it, but I think it's like akin to when television came on and, you know, people were like, oh, this is going to destroy society as we know it. There's always some new technological advance that everyone feels is going to like take us away from some part of our humanity. And I, I just choose to not believe that because I think that we'll always it's like both things can be equally true in opposition. I don't think that just because you like to consume this kind of content that it precludes you from yearning for the kinds of stories where you're going to be seen, where you're going to be, you know, you're going to learn or you're just going to laugh. Like, I still think there's a space for that. Of course. I really do. Of course. Though the Apple Vision Pro videos, <laughs> I mean, I think they're scary and exciting because like, look, I, I think an immersive experience can be credible. And like, I like the opening up of, of that, that form. Like I have a three-year-old son and I don't want him living his life in a headset, but on the other hand, I'll create a movie for it. You know? (laughs) Yeah. I think it's time and place. And I think we're still at this, this technology is still so new that we haven't quite figured out time and place for it all. So we're going too hard in one direction until it course corrects. And we, we figure out, okay, this isn't doable or sustainable, or it's also, it already puts you on a sort of like societal hierarchy because of the, your ability to even afford these devices. Like now you're clearly showing the world that you have a certain amount of income disparity. Like it just creates a whole other thing. You know, if everybody yeah. was getting one, I'd be like, okay, maybe, but yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a good thing. There are people that don't want that. So that's the good thing. There are people yeah. that don't want to live in that future. We'll see what happens, yeah. but it we'll definitely is a turning point. Uh, this past these past few days with that entering the zeitgeist yeah i'm definitely gonna go do the demo my brother my older brother has been working in the vr space for over a decade even before hollywood was like really akin to it so i've been sort of aware and abreast of this stuff from for a long time and i'm curious as well i think there maybe is a space for some stories that really warrant being that immersive but i don't think that maybe it's everything like i don't know i don't know but that's my instinct you know well, I'd love to move to the lightning round. And Let's wrap do it. Up. Thank you so much, Coco, for coming on, for sharing a bit of your journey with me and the listeners. 
this, this podcast is a labor of love and I love doing it, but I can't do it alone. I mean, I could just talk forever and maybe enough people would listen, but the value is really in having guests like yourself coming on and sharing and being real and raw and documenting this moment in your journey. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I hope I said something of use to someone. I'm sure you did. Sure you did. I I found tons of value in what you said, so I'm sure others will as well. Okay, so this is the lightning round. Here's the first question. What's a song that teleports you to a happy place? Just Like Heaven by The Cure. Okay, what's the latest piece of art that moved you? It could be a book, a film, a show, anything. I saw a documentary at Sundance called A New Kind of Wilderness about a Norwegian family that's like living off the grid and the the mother has died. And I know this isn't a lightning response, (laughs) but in, in the wake of all the technological advances, having a young child living off the grid suddenly becomes more and more appealing. So the documentary, a new kind of wilderness really uh, moved me. Fill in the blank. When I'm overworked, blank helps ease the stress. Red wine. Any particular kind? I'll drink anything. As long as it's red. (laughs) As long as it's red. What is one of the most worthwhile investments you've ever made? And it doesn't have to be financial. A Tempur-Pedic mattress. A really, really good mattress. I really need to maximize those those seven hours every night. So I stayed in this apartment in Toronto when I was shooting Mrs. America. And the guy had a Tempur-Pedic mattress because he was a pitcher for the Blue Jays, the previous person living there and i was like oh my god like i'm never sleeping on a normal mattress ever again and i have slept really well for the past you know four years great well tempur-pedic mattress needs to sponsor this podcast so thank you we need to make that happen (laughs) every listener needs to be on a tempur-pedic mattress i plugged it for you thank you okay last question is what is one question or piece of advice that you have for the next producer who comes on the podcast. I don't know who that's going to be yet. It's an anonymous person. And then we may reveal who the person is that asked the question or not. I haven't decided yet. I'd say don't count your chickens until they've hatched or (laughs) get everything in writing. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Very good. Thanks so much for tuning in and doing this life thing with me. If you like the show, please don't forget to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm at Carolina Gropa. The show's at Angle on Producers. And I'll see you next week. Beijos.